Welcome to Mistaken Identity, unexpected lessons for building great products that customers love. As a product leader, knowing your customer's identity is essential in developing and delivering products that really hit the mark. But there are a lot of myths surrounding customer identity that can lead to misguided product decisions. We're here to bust those myths and share strategies from product leaders on how to leverage customer identity to your advantage. Get ready to dive into the world of product leadership with today's guest, Casio Sampaio. Casio has led hardware and SaaS product teams at some of the biggest names in tech, including Apple, DigitalOcean, and Auth0. Casio is currently Senior Vice President of Product at Okta for the Customer Identity Cloud, formerly Auth0. With Casio at the helm, Okta is helping organizations worldwide bring their applications to life while navigating the complex world of customer identity and access management, or SIAM. Stay tuned as Casio shares his insights and expertise and offers valuable advice for aspiring product leaders in today's ever-evolving tech landscape. This podcast is brought to you by Okta, the world's identity company. With Okta, build the next era of identity into your tech stack. Learn more at okta.com. And now in the studio today, welcome Casio Sampaio. Casio, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. It's great to be here today. Really excited to have you. Really excited to get into you know your background and experience. But maybe before we get that uh, into that a little deeper, maybe tell us how did you get into your role. Tell us a little bit about your role and how you got into it. Yeah, so uh, I think I'm the typical case of that accidental product person. Um, I ended up in product management after a decade, maybe a decade-ish long career, like in very technical roles, engineering management, etc. Um, I always cared a lot about talking directly to my users and customers about why do you need this thing that my team is building right now. And because of that, of course, I always got more of that uh, customer exposure, which led me into more of a product role. I think you combine that also with the fact that very early in my career, um, I was fortunate to be exposed to the business side of technology, like costs, like efficiency, like margins, pricing, et cetera. And because I worked very long hours, I became a product manager. So here I am. <laughs> That's the key. That's critical. Uh, maybe could you explain a little bit about what Okta does? And, uh, you know, I'm familiar with it, but maybe for the listeners of the show who aren't. And what your role as senior vice president of product actually entails? So our vision at Okta is to free everyone to safely use any technology. What that means is that we provide identity solutions for all use cases, right? Roughly workforce, customer use cases, like, include like all the different needs that's identity authentication and authorization uh, typically require. Uh, and that's what, uh, what we do here at, uh, at Okta. Now, talking a little bit about my, my, my role here, like in the, in the organization. So I currently run uh, the product team for uh, customer identity cloud uh, at Okta. So roughly at Okta, we divide the, uh, the world of identity into uh, workforce, employee identity, and customer identity. And the latter is what my team takes care of. This is essentially the technology that became part of Okta through the Alt Zero acquisition. I had joined Alt Zero around a, a long year prior to the acquisition, so I've been here for over three years now. Uh, and what Customer Identity Cloud does is that enables any company that's building consumer digital experiences or SaaS applications to very rapidly integrate our identity stack into that technology to make those apps more secure and more convenient to, to users. So pretty much every single application in the world. 
maybe 99.99% of them. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, that's great. Thanks for that background. Could you, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience working for DigitalOcean, maybe Apple and Okta as well, and, and what specifically stood out the most from each experience? I think we have, this is episode one of like a four, like season series. Like, is we going to need like a little bit extra time to talk about this? <laughs> we'll get your Netflix documentary all, all loaded here for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, clearly not. Um, so uh, maybe chronological order, like to, to help with this, uh, starting with, uh, with DigitalOcean. So prior to that, most of my career had been in um, infrastructure, like mission critical technology. Uh, I never really worked in like, purely consumer uh, technology companies. But DigitalOcean was my first exposure to a fully product-led growth company. So no sales reps, no direct sales force. Everything happens like through a website. You like the product, you sign up, credit card, boom, right? So that's fascinating. Hundreds of thousands of developers like on the platform. The numbers, just the sheer scale of it and all of that being done in this like super efficient way where it's basically a very direct relationship like in between the product and people building the product and the customers using that, which was great for, for a product person to, uh, to, to experience. It really helped me understand a lot the power, the value of transparency, communicating changes directly to your users, targeting messages depending on the different types of usage patterns that your uh, install base had, social media engagement, research at a whole different scale given the sheer size of our install base. So that was DigitalOcean, like in not quite a nutshell, but a nutshell-ish. Apple, Apple is Apple, Apple is different. and once you join it, like it really becomes very obvious that it's more different than one expect from, uh, from, from the outside. I was part of the team that uh, managed, uh, manages cloud infrastructure for Apple, uh, right? And I mean, Apple, if you haven't heard of them, they're kind of big, lots of services, lots of user, user, users, but it's unimaginable, at least it was for me from the outside, to get a sense of the sheer size, the number of projects that are running like concurrently. It will satisfy my curiosity from that perspective to see like a company of that sheer size and the relentless commitment that Apple has to their core beliefs of innovation, uh, customer, like privacy, et cetera. So that was all very, very interesting. Now over to Okta. Uh, so I've been here for over three years, right? Like, as I said, um, like a little earlier. Um, and for me, like the highlight of this has been helping to bring Auth0 into, like into Okta. It's just fascinating. I had seen other types of integrations, acquisitions, like M&A, but nothing at this size and nothing at this level of, um, um, I mean, just a good fit, the perfect fit in like of the two technologies, the two like install bases, like coming, uh, coming together and the value uh, of bringing two leaders in the space, right? That to me is being sort of the pinnacle of what we are going through, like starting two years, um, two years ago. These are hard problems, like really hard problems, but those experiences don't come twice, like maybe I don't think they will come like twice in my lifetime. So I'm like making the most of it. Yeah, that's that's an incredible, I mean, even story arc of yourself over the last couple of years as well. And I think you, you really hit on something there too, where managing all that scale and complexity and needed to manage an integration of this size while managing incredible growth for the company in general, right? It's uh, It's quite amazing. I think like, I'd love to talk a little bit about that as well. What do you think, what goes into fueling such remarkable growth that, you know, we've obviously experienced within the industry, but also at Okta in general. 
I think there's a lot of factors that, that are going into fueling this growth, but maybe uh, the ones that come to mind, one is the relentless move to, to the cloud, right? You would hear uh, Todd McKinnon, uh, our CEO, talk about like this, like secular changes that are happening in the sector, the move, the digitization of different environments. And um, I mean, there's a place for on-premises, there's a place for like data centers, et cetera. But the reality is that it, the, the cloud growth is, uh, it's unstoppable. Um, you combine that with the digital transformation projects that every company needs to be out there and needs to have like, forget if they're storefront or like providing services or reducing customer friction through a digital experience. You combine that and like for us in customer identity, it's like the perfect storm, right? For, for us to, to be in. And then of course, security. Um, there's not a single day that goes by and I'm going to try to spare like our listeners here from any jargon or any cliches. I'm sure I'm going to fail, but I'll try. Uh, the every day is a new breach, is a new type of like threat, a new vulnerability like that's out there. And um, like we are the heart of it. Like we as identity, we are that technology. Then a lot of cases is that boundary in between your data, your privacy, like information, like your customers and the bad actors that, um, like that, that are out there. And because users have been conditioned to experience, to expect seamless click, one-click experience like Amazon, right? It makes it very easy for you to, I don't know, go in debt, like if you will, and spend all your money away with one-click purchases or like Netflix is one-click. You get to a hotel and you check in with your phone, get to your door, like type of thing. So that becomes an expectation for every every human uh, now on the face of earth. And that's what our customers are looking for. Customers in all different types of industries, regardless of where they sit in terms of um, the innovation cycle, their customers have come to expect that, really, sort of that, that experience from them. And that's what we're here for, right? To help customers like provide that. Yeah, it's certainly the expectation. And I, I almost equate often when I'm talking to, to customers as well of identity being this invisible hand, right? When it's not working, you certainly notice it. And when it is working and it's working well, it's something that you just expect. You expect to be able to use your phone to, you know, to just use it as your room key. You, you expect to be able to, with your fingerprints, sign into all of your applications. When you can't do that, or there's friction in that process becomes a huge problem. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about identity in general. And I think looking at, you know, what you and I are actually wearing today seems to be part of our identities to wear a three-quarter uh, black zip, uh, <laughs> which is which is awesome. But when we think about identity in general, how, you know, thinking about how we, we pull that into the product creation sort of element of it, how can we effectively uh, identify and understand our customers' identities to build successful products? Well, that's a great question. And I think what we're wearing has to do with the latitudes that we have chosen to live to, right, Matt? Because none of us are in the tropics. Like, that's uh, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true. It may be a bit of a cliche, but cultural differences, regional differences, like, matter a lot. And it's funny because we're talking about identities and, like, that is just makes for, like, a very, very interesting topic in itself. Understanding that to start, like, don't make assumptions that are the same just because you use social login, right? Like when you log in with Facebook or you log in with uh, like your Google account, et cetera, that that same profile that you see if you run like a US Canada-based business will apply if you go to Southeast Asia, like for example, right? You're gonna have differences in terms of 
A, there will be different apps, right? Like that's a like the social networking ecosystem has some regional important differences, but there's also regulatory, there's political, like the political, more fragmented political environment that we live. Uh, like these days, more restrictions in terms of the regulatory scrutiny that places like Western Europe, like the European Union, like in general, like or like Australia, etc., are subject to. So got to be mindful of that. Um, the other thing too is very easy for us uh, here, like in the, like in a in a developed country, to assume that of course everyone has like the latest device that's out there. So biometrics, like yeah, check, everyone's got it. That's such a false assumption, right? Like you, uh, you, we talk about passkey, like right now is is like this huge thing that's happening, which we believe, but we've gotta be mindful, right? That there's a whole, there's like billions of people out there that are on devices that are from a very different generation and you need to provide technologies that support all of that, uh, ideally with the same level of security. And then third, I think the nature of the business too is is very important. What are you securing with your identity? Are you securing um, like healthcare, like records, uh, financial data, like retirement savings, like plans or 401ks if you're like in my territory right now versus all you're doing is like cashing like a coupon for like a $5 discount on a, on a Sanders shop, right? Not that the visit is not important, but the level of sensitivity, how much you're going to put users through in order to, to get through that. So understanding that, the identity of your users from that point of view like, is very, very important. What do you feel are some common myths or misconceptions about customer identity that product managers should be aware of, you know, when they're thinking about building their own products? Do we have like four hours for this one? Too, or is... <laughs> this is a, this is another documentary, another Netflix documentary. <laughs> That's right, like the Lord of the Identity Rings. Let's go do that. <laughs> um, I think what's most relevant in here would be like most prospects, like and, and developers, like they they come to us running that in house, right? We see this over and over again. You don't think of identity, or most people don't think of identity that as discreetly as you think of um, some other technologies that are like out there, like cloud computing. Obvious, right? No, very few companies will think of building their own Kubernetes like infrastructure or their own virtual machines. But identity is not quite there, like yet. So, folks will start building an app, and they're like, "Yeah, just a login box. Just throw a login box there." Like, and and I think. What happens then, we see this over and over again, is like you fast forward like a little bit and that it's just taking up so much time and so much cycles from the engineering teams uh, that need to be, should be building value into the app and now they are consumed by essentially what we do like in here, right? Um, I think that's a huge like misconception like that customer identity still going through like where people don't see them as a discrete technology like that um i think we're making progress like in, in that front but i think that that's a key one i i definitely agree with that and i think even for alternate audiences that should and that really benefit from identity i think about being in a marketing role and generally marketers and, and digital folks as well who are in digital roles you know, are probably not aware of the benefits that a focus on this level of customer identity inside of your application can actually have, right? It can help you improve conversions. It can help you really drive that customer retention. Again, almost that visible, invisible hand mentality, but it's it's really how you balance that security and user experience and even privacy and compliance as well all together, but deliver that in, in a real perfect balance that kind of unlocks uh, you know, the value for those, those, uh, those different parts of the business too. 
I think technology evolves in always in this direction of creating more abstraction layers like over time, right? So if we go back to the beginning of my career, I'm going to try to not date myself in here, <laughs> but I'm like, maybe I will, like where I'll, you had to build a lot more in-house, right? I, I happened to work with identity way back when the OAuth standards were like not around. None of this like was around. So we had to figure out the encryption that goes into your cookies to manage that session. Like you keep that on a PHP like database that you build yourself. Over time, those things get more and more and more and more abstracted away. Uh, but customer identity is still not seen as like a module, like a full like mod encapsulated module like that. Uh, but it's getting there. Like I think that it's moving in, the, in that direction. You know, the understanding of customer identity, how can it improve adoption, engagement, and really retention of of products? I'm not going to say data is a new oil because that is a cliche <laughs> that I, I refuse to <laughs> all cross that line. You told me no cliches. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, but in all seriousness, the um, like bringing, trying to bring identity data into like what we call funnel analysis, right? At the end of the day, every company, regardless of what you're doing, or you want is to get thinking of that as a typical like conversion funnel, right? You want to get users to come in, to sign up, to come back, to have a, a seamless experience, regardless of them consuming a, a finan- having a financial transaction with you. So understanding that abandonment when customers are trying or the user are trying to log in, right, because of an authentication problem. What we see is that a lot of funnel analytics or analysis that are out there are much more focused on like the cart abandonment, like it's sort of kind of like the post identity experience. Like once you're already logged in and you kind of blind to a lot of things that are happening on the, like on the top end of that. When you look at the power of someone using a certain type of uh, authentication technique, like how much faster they're able to resolve the challenge and with like rate of success, right? If you compare something like face ID with the typical username or password, like an email link, like it's orders of magnitude faster and it's most of the time it's going to be resolved with perfection because you tend to look like yourself. Like when you're staring at your phone, like most of the time you're carrying your own thumb, like around like that type of thing. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know about the scenarios where people carry other people's thumbs around. <laughs> that's, that's for a different kind of podcast. I think the true crime broadcast, <laughs> but, um, that's that's all that's all excellent. What about uh, thinking about even strategies of of things that product managers can think about? What strategies can product managers use to leverage customer identity knowledge and provide a better customer experience for their own applications? I think what's key here is trying to map the business value that so the different identity strategy techniques or uh, or I mean just techniques like we have in terms of improving. The different the things that businesses care about, right? For a lot of identity projects, fail to get support from the business like side of the house because people talk about like, yeah, we're going to support OAuth. Like, I know what OAuth is. I mean, it has to be some of the unfortunate people that spend time like in that. But if I'm a marketer and I'm just trying to like like launch a new product, a new promotion, etc., like I really like I don't care and I shouldn't care. So, but if you translate that into business value, right? So let's think about it, like uh, mapping registration or your sign up to conversion, like telling the story from that point of view, that's uh, by using social login, by allowing you to sign up with Passkey, for example, you will convert customers like this much, like faster, this much better quality of conversion. You prevent more fraud, you reduce 
like exposure to account takeover. Now you're talking right about business metrics that are mapped directly to it. To it. Login, next step. Login equals retention. You sign up, did some stuff, log in, you came back for more. Make it seamless, right? Get the person right away to what the person is trying to do. I think that's that's what's key is translate that. We're talking about the same thing, just using a different language, like a different vocabulary to it. And that helps, like just helps to break those those barriers. Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to come back to something I think you mentioned earlier of sort of this concept of building technology yourself versus going with a solution that actually, you know, you can just implement right away. Um, that's sort of like building it versus buy, uh, buying the solution. I've, I've had a lot of conversations recently with uh, through executive roundtables, and this has been the actual focus. But I, I'd love to hear your take on what would you say in terms of like, you know, when folks actually go to look at solving some of these problems, what would the state of the industry be today with regards to how they go about approaching building it on their own or, you know, going to market in another different way? If you go a level up uh, and look at the overall identity um, industry or space, it's not, it's very, it's, it's heterog- heterogeneous in a way where workforce employee identity uh, is much more mature as a technology, uh, as, a, as a space, like or a sub-industry, like, if, if you will, in the sense that um, most organizations, when they're thinking about introducing some, like you, you're growing your company, your startup, like, or your large organization, you think of your um, enterprise, like directory, like single sign-on, like your MFA as something that uh, you typically don't build. Most of the time you will, you would buy. That doesn't happen in customer identity yet, right? We were talking about how many organizations start building that in, in-house just to, to learn about that later. So it's important to understand like that, just two sides of that identity industry that's still at different levels of, uh, uh, of maturity. And what's fascinating or obvious if you're an identity, but not if you're a little bit far away from that, is that there's a lot of shared components when you're building a workforce and a customer identity. You could argue that, uh, well, I do need a directory to store like my identities, sure. But when you move up closer to what the actual end user, the parts that are visible to the end user there, like need, there are significant differences, right? Like in a workforce environment, you may not necessarily impose that everyone uses like a company-issued device who may allow for bringing your own device, but you still have control like to drop something in that, uh, some type of MDM, some other type of technology that will help enforce a higher level security in, into that device, I mean, consumer, that's just like some companies are able, depending on an app, right? The, the value of that technology should drop something to the device, but a lot of times you might not be able to. Um, and then how much customers, how hard your security policies can afford to be on a consumer device, of course, is different than than, uh, than what it is for like an employee, an employee identity. So with that, with those differences like well understood, um, just keeping in mind, if you're talking identity, the customer identity, early stages, lots of things being built like um, in-house um, and devs love to build stuff, right? Like I I still write code, believe it or not. Um, I love to build stuff. Like, so do you want to spend your time on this versus spending time on something that's uh, your marketing team is like, kind of like over there, like waiting for you to ship? I think those are the considerations. You get to choose where you focus your time on, right? To generate the to generate the most value, I think that's really key. Thinking about the folks on you know that are listening to this to this podcast, this episode specifically, that might be starting out in product management or are maybe aspiring product managers. 
What are what's your experience of sort of the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows of creating a product? What are some of the things that you could share there? Yeah, it's definitely um, like not for the faint of heart to be uh, <laughs> <laughs> like a B two B product, like product product manager. Um, but I think what's and it's part of the fascination that I have with this, but also the challenges is that on the on the very like on the very same day. Like you may be helping your account teams, your sales teams to just close like the marquee, like customer that you've been working on for like six to uh, like to nine months. And then the next second, you may be dealing with some type of escalation, like due to some, it could be security, it could be uh, like an outage, it could be a customer specific feature, like request that they need. At the same time, you want to keep your teams focused on releasing continuous value like to customers you're coordinating market launches you're doing research on partnerships and acquisitions. so there's like you're working on so much like and i love it if you recall what i said earlier you work long hours right like so you because you need to but the diversity of the different levels of altitude in terms of technology business that you need to um to be prepared to do it is what to make this fascinating, but also uh, also very challenging. And I think it's important to stay flexible, right? In the way so that you get there, you may know the destination, but the path to get there, you have to, you have to be willing to adjust and iterate, right? Like you still have a lot of the old, if you will, philosophy that's uh, you write is perfectly aligned, beautifully like outlined Gantt chart, like you put that on the wall and come back two years and you'll be there, like it's proven to fail over and over again, right? So setting that destination, like in there and allowing the teams to, to figure out the best way to get there. You may need to adjust, you may need to course correct, but staying flexible, like keeping your sort of like an open mind so that I think it's key to enjoy the, enjoy the ride. I love that. I love that point. You know, flexibility, adaptability. It sounds like that. Those are real strong characteristics that a product manager needs because you are Jack or Jill of all trades, right? To, to, to put one of my own cliches in there. Uh, one, you know, number one cliche on the board there. So I'm catching up past you. <laughs> Another question, I was thinking about disruption when you were talking there about, you know, sharing your experience of, of how you build, you know, strong products and in your, you know, your thoughts, your experience and your opinion, what's the importance of being a disruptor, right? Like why do large companies need to disrupt more? 876, like or, or not, uh, let's do it. I guess um, I'm not catching up then. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're not disrupting, you're being disrupted. Sure, the barriers of entry in technology are generally low, sure. Like depending on the business, like there you're in, if you have massive amounts of um, like physical assets like involved, is that easy to go after the cloud computing uh, business and displace lots of capital they have to go into that, right? Like they, um, the cost per unit that some of these large companies are able to, to negotiate is will be hard for like, any other organization or smaller organizations to do it to do, but in software, um, things move very fast. Newer companies have don't have legacy, right? Not having legacy is a like it's a blessing if you think of uh, of software, of software technology, right? So it, there's always going to be someone looking at a way to do what you are doing, like cheaper, better, faster, like. And if you get two of them, right, you're already like 
onto like building uh, a building building your business. Large companies have this escape velocity problem. Like you're always working on the thing that your existing customers need, and you have to try to create some capacity to work on. Call it Horizon Three. Call it like long term, whatever terminology you want to use it. So it's existential. If you if you're not setting aside time resource to work on that, someone else will. And if you look at what's happened over the past few decades, like for data from yesterday, markets move. So this may be different, like by the time listeners uh, tune in, but um, four of the top 10 companies by market cap were not around 30 years ago, right? Um, and if you want to stretch that a little bit and add two companies to that, like number goes up to six and 40 years, but let's just stay with 30 and four, like for now. Uh, so when I graduated, which was like, sure, you're listening, like, oh my Lord, this was like a long time ago. Yes. When I graduated, the companies I aspire to work for, they are not the same ones that like folks are graduating now are like, it's been completely upended um, from, uh, from like, from that perspective. And it's not slowing down. Like, I know there's a lot of talk about technology domination by a small number of players, like, et cetera. Uh, but the innovation that we are seeing, the number of new entrants that we see every week coming in now with all the, um, uh, like, the AI, like, revolution that's happening. Uh, and Matt, you and I saw firsthand, like, a certain company dominant, like, at one point in Southwestern Ontario, how rapidly that uh, uh, became something very different, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's almost when you're not disrupting, you're you're losing sight of the future vision. Uh, and I really like what you said there about companies that even weren't around in the past decade. Uh, I saw something really interesting recently about all of the companies that have been founded since the last time the Toronto Maple Leafs won a playoff series. <laughs> it is a list of almost a hundred a hundred companies. You know, uh, like Gmail, YouTube, Snapchat, WhatsApp, like all of these applications hadn't been uh, created yet. But maybe thinking about that theme of of future thinking and future vision, because I, I really like that. I want to kind of understand that a bit more, even for for the listeners too. What would you say, or what are some things you wish you knew about product management five years ago? What about twenty? Like there'll be more. <laughs> okay, but let's, let's stick to five. Um, the even, I think even if you are in a B2B, um, if you go back, B2B technology or the, even the notion of B2B wasn't quite out there. Like if you go back a little, like a little further, right? You're either building a firewall, you're building like some network equipment, you're building a server um, or some type of software that you ship like on a, on a DVD, on a CD. Like now people are, now people are just like switching on. Like at the moment I say CD, lost half of the listeners. <laughs> but, um, like, like we were just saying, like things have moved on like a lot and now we work, we operate in this world of everything is everything. There's an expectation that you're going to be very transparent about your releases. You're going to be very transparent about why you specifically, you face a certain type of outage. These things didn't exist in the past, right? Companies by definition um, did not want any transparency. Like you ship your DVD to customers, like you have a support line, the transparency would be whatever the companies had to type on your support ticket. Like those days are long gone, right? And I think this change happened like faster than a lot of professionals in the industries were ready to, like to accept. Like I myself had to adjust my ways of working uh, by going into that. But once you embrace it, I think it makes it so much easier to understand and create that uh, customer connection, that developer connection, that user connection that builds trust, 
increase their um, like their reliance on you and your ability to 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 to, to collaborate like with them. Um, so this is something that happened potentially over the past uh, decade. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a big change, like from how product managers like think about engaging with their like w- w- with their customers. Yeah, big change, and that's really great advice, I think, for any of the product folks out there listening to this as well. Um, what about product management skills? What are some underrated product management skills you think that are you know great product managers have? At, at a very high level, or a very maybe like the opposite, like at a very low level, I think de- attention to detail is one of the things that separate like awesome product managers from even very good product managers. You have these individuals that are just relentless. They will like look at a specific, they, they will look at the docs, they will look at the, re- the press release, et cetera, and they'll get in and they'll wordsmith like every single aspect like, like of it. And the graphics are not right. And like, I look at the map, I look at the docs, I look at the, like at the SDK and you know what, like the way that works in the dashboard, the API, like you need that obsession like with that uh, to be able to build the things that customers really, it's a very competitive space. We talk about barriers of entry, like the differentiation sometimes would be that last mile, right? It would be that last like level of detail. So I think that's number one. If you want to be a great product manager, be obsessed with the details like that matter um, and push your teams in that direction. More broadly, I would say more, more general skills, what I found in my career to be very useful uh, is to be, to, to be able to, to understand the legal and finance implications and how to talk to your finance and legal partners. Like, in, like particularly as your organization scales up, a lot of companies, the relationship with legal finance becomes a little adversarial with product, um, which doesn't have to be. I think a lot of that falls on us to be more, be able to be conversational, like on the language, on the terminology, understanding where like those teams are, like, are, are coming from. I'm a little bit of a sucker for those topics, so I really enjoy reading contracts. Like now, we lost another two thirds of the <laughs> listeners <laughs> in here, but uh, I think it helps. So it helps. It's helped me a lot, uh, and then it gets everyone on the same side of the argument. Everyone is trying to ship products. Everyone is trying to like sell more to customers, like to improve customer like satisfaction. It just turns everyone into partners, like instead of um, adversaries. It's such a good point as well about both finance and legal of building relationships with those teams because they're not departments of no. They're basically risk management departments, right? And even with finance, they're trying to manage the financial risk of the business and legal is trying to manage the risk of the business. So they need to understand that what we're saying the product actually does, does what it says. So it's a, it's a really good point of, I think, you know, looking to build strong relationships with those uh, with those teams, because it is critically important, I think, to your success as a product manager as well going forward. Really good points. Yeah, and the technology, if you think of our technology in particular, or a lot of B2B infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, um, you may not be thinking about as you're building the product, but the product may be underpinning critical infrastructure. It may be underpinning access, uh, privilege access, like to some type of pipeline water supply, healthcare, right? It's beyond, it's beyond just giving the customer the ability to sell, sell products, like proceed a successful checkout to buy some 
very, very important things that you couldn't live without and that has to have to ship overnight because they really need it, like tonight, right? We're talking about things that could disrupt like cities, could disrupt infrastructure. And that's, of course, you have significant legal implications like to that, like, and how do you ensure that, uh, to your point, like that the product works to spec, right? And the spec in that case is a whole different level of rigor and expectations. What about the future? When we think about the future of customer identity, what does the future of customer identity and access management look like? And how is Okta positioning itself for that future? Fundamentally, the customer identity problem will continue to be about the balance of convenience and security, right? We use that terminology a lot, like here within uh, within Okta. And it's it's really not a cliche, but it's the reality, right? When you're building an app, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get users as fast as they can, as safely as with the minimum acceptable level of security, like that your business is willing to, to tolerate or to accept, uh, if, if you will. So a lot of technologies. We'll continue to invest heavily on that, right? There's Passkey. That's an important piece of the puzzle. Not the only one, but it's an important one that's, uh, like that, that, that is coming. You want to bring um, as many as many login options or identification options for users. You want to bring the ability to use their phone number. Uh, you want to bring the ability to use like a random, not a random, but like a different account identifier. If you're logging into your mileage like plan service, your mileage plan ID may be the actual like number, like your email may be a secondary. Like given that level of flexibility for users to do it is very key uh, for, for our future. Um, we also believe that we talked a little bit about the reliability and the importance of like these app, apps being always on. We have this um, concept that we, we we created internally that I think even it was posted externally on a couple of blog posts of ours. This notion that we see identity as a tier zero service, uh, something that's uh, Shiv and Ramji, my boss, smart guy, for the record, by the way, posted, uh, uh, which is we expect, we built something that we expect to be always on available everywhere in the globe with the highest levels of performance, right? Performance measured as like response times, as ability to scale up in terms of requests. So that's the other part that we continue to invest a lot because now customer identity is on every customer touch points. We are an impatient bunch. We are not willing to click and expect that to respond in seconds, right? We become very patient. Uh, and, and the last part is um, you're not going to win alone, like on this, right? Like it's an ecosystem play. The world is um, the API economy to use cliche number 916, like, but it's real. Um, and to make Siam successful, our philosophy is extensibility first. If customers want to integrate that with any system that they have or they license, we don't necessarily care. Like they can do that on their own. We don't. We don't have to stay in the way of them doing that. And at the same time, bringing more partners like to that ecosystem. So then, when customers come to us, there's more of a menu. Hey, we worked with all of these hundreds of companies. We know we've proven that integration actually works. So then it gets them faster uh, and more efficiently to to market. Cool. All right. Now we're going to go through some quick hits, some fun questions. Fun question time, Cassio. What is your favorite thing that you're reading or watching right now? Don't watch a lot of television. Um, am I even allowed to say television these days? That word even a word anymore? <laughs> yeah, like, you know what I don't understand is how do children understand the word videotape? 
because my, my kids say that, can you videotape me doing this all the time? And I'm just like, how do you even get that word? Like, how do you understand? It's kind of like how it's how the save icon is a little uh, floppy disk. It's like, how, how do you understand what a floppy disk is? I know what it is and that's dating myself, but anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> no, that's great. That is great. So, so I, I just finished reading um, a book called Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. It's by Stephen Johnson. Stephen Johnson is one of my favorite like authors, like writers. Like, and this book tries to tell the, it's very ambitious, tries to tell the history of the world from the perspective that humans were just trying to have fun. And that's why everything happened. It didn't happen because we are looking for economic or political like improvements or achievements or more wealth. It happened because we wanted to eat like delicious food. You wanted to like enjoy good music and read like interesting things and then everything followed. So it's 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 fascinating. Um hopefully some folks you will pick that so I'll take a look at that. That's awesome. I'll have to check that one out. Absolutely. If you had to live anywhere in the world, where would that be? <laughs> you know the answer to this one. Um Waterloo, Ontario? <laughs> I live there. I but it's not like nothing against my my ad- adopted homeland, but uh, I love Southern Europe, places that make great wine. Um, not all places, but like Southern European places that make great wine. Love them. Uh, in particular, the Iberian Peninsula and more specifically Portugal, right? The, the combination of food, people, weather, lifestyle, I think is unbeatable. And the last thing I think to the helps here is that I did my um, ancestry, like DNA test, and it came back as 95% portuguese so no kidding well there you go it's calling back it's calling me back they're trying to bring you back home (laughs) that's awesome what about the best advice what's the best life advice that you've ever gotten oh okay um okay let's go back to books um because i think the maybe the uh, the best advice i got was by reading a lot and um i got into into like stoicism, like reading about the Stoics um, several years like back. And it's a very powerful like philosophy. I'm not very good at following like them. Like I'm not like, I won't argue that I'm like Greek level or Roman level. Like I'm still working my way up there. Uh, but um, some of the principles I think really, really help to shape the way I try to, to, to operate. Like one of them is this idea that you don't set your expectations like either like to the best or the worst possible scenarios, but that you think about all of them and you prepare yourself for those outcomes, but you sort of like frame your expectations within a narrower scope, like in there, because then there's no surprises, right? Just not expecting to become a billionaire tomorrow or to not have a place to live. Like, so you're working within something more, uh, more like more moderate or like that. So I think that's been very liberating when you're able to do it. You just face things like in much more factual terms without like less emotions. And um, no, that's being, it's being transformational for me. I love that. Focusing on obviously what you can control, what's in your span of control, and then move on. That's really great advice. Exactly. What about the best, what's the best tech advice that you've ever gotten? Okay. So we talked that I quit TV ages ago, um, and but I read. And a lot of what I read, I'm going to offer a contrary point of view here like which if you know me you know i do that quite quite a bit uh but starting the 2010s i started reading a lot of about the potential harm 
that some of the new some of the new technologies can do to us, both as societies or as individuals, uh, mental health, like etc. Um, there's a bunch of things I read that are great books. So I'm going to just list them out here if anyone is interested. I think they're all fascinating, like technology solutionism. You're not a gadget. Weapons of math dis- uh, math destruction. The cyber effect. Um, the silo effect and future shock. I'm not a Luddite. Right? I'm not a type of person that you're like, oh, like I, I don't even know how to use a computer. No, I'm not like that, but I believe that technology serves us. We don't shouldn't serve technology. The offline world is awesome, right? I love offline, like too. It's proven for millennia to have been working, <laughs> but for us, for, for the most part. So I think that's, to me, is like balancing how much you dedicate yourself to technology versus having technology serve you. It's how I think about it. I feel like he could have, you know, rewound a couple of thousands of years and said, you know, if we had the same conversation, you'd say, I'm looking forward to the wheel. I think it's a it's an incredible invention. Um, I mean, I'm really looking forward to the wheel. But what uh, what what technical development are are you looking forward to? I'm I'm sure it's not the wheel. There has to be something else. Yeah, I think if I said that, we all really date myself. Um, <laughs> and no, we don't have the time machines like just yet. Um, I, I think I do, I'm not even allowed to say anything that's not related to artificial intelligence. Am I like that's? I, I, I'm not. I feel like we um, have to. Like, if I had time, I would ask ChatGPT to answer that question for me, but I won't. <laughs> like, and I'll let you wonder, wonder if ChatGPT answered all the other questions that Matt just asked me, but maybe not. Um, I am very interested in how the development of um, this general uh, large language models and the GPT tech, like, will have in terms of the regulatory um, like implications, like government uh, position, like, in respect to that, like, and everything like in between, right? Like successful technologies are the ones that help to change society without like breaking it, right? Or without the fear of breakage, right? Because if that fear exists, then it typically drives an over like reaction that that's, we don't want to see it. So of course, like everyone else, we're following those developments of this type of technology very, uh, very closely. It has potential to just make everything so much better. Forget I, I personally don't believe in this fear-mongering that we're just going to get rid of jobs because, you know what, this has happened before. It was the Industrial Revolution. They pre- like, it's just happened before. And for the most part, we actually have quite the opposite problem right now, like where unemployment is so low, like in some, uh, in some geographies. But I'm curious to see the development of this in line with how the regulatory and political like, systems are reacting to it. It's 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 amazing that we you know have gotten to this point and really haven't touched on artificial intelligence and I think the impact that it's having on the technology industry. I feel like the pace of change that it's driving is just it's incredible, right? You look around and it's like every single day there's a new like LLM, there's a new model, there's a new version of GPT, there is a something that is new. There are so many co-pilots now; it is unbelievable that I kind of think about how this, how I think about the application of it, right? To your point of, it's not that it's going to make a whole bunch of jobs obsolete. Well, that might be one piece of the puzzle for the jobs that are ready for disruption, right? I think the other piece is that it's going to also open up a whole nother, you know, uh, line of, of working with these types of technologies to improve the quality of life, to make things easier, to do all of these things. And uh, you talk about disruption, 
I mean, this, I, I don't know if there's another technology out there that exists today that is more disruptive, uh, you know, than, than AI and, and, uh, GPT technologies. Yeah, no, like absolutely. And, um, this is something I'll be monitoring very closely. Excellent. Well, Cassio, listen, I want to thank you for joining us today on this episode of the Mistaken Identity Podcast. It's been incredible getting to know a little bit about your background, your story on how you've approached developing, you know, great products and even some of the challenges and the misconceptions that you, you've encountered along the way. So thank you very much for joining today's podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. This was great. That's all for this episode of the Mistaken Identity Podcast. Mistaken Identity is brought to you by Okta, your strategic partner for building awesome customer identity experiences. Discover how by visiting us at okta.com.